We are live on another edition of the Edlow Podcast. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. I say it three times every time because you need to subscribe. So I am here with forensic psychologist, true time crime consultant and expert witness, Dr. Dana Anderson. Psych D, how do you say that? Is it Psych D, PhD? Psy D. Okay. Okay. So Psy D, and what does the Psy D mean? So uh, it feels like it's been a huge mystery that no one's really knows about. And I've had to more recently explain it to people because a lot of students are asking me if they should get a PsyD or a PhD. And most people don't know PH stands for philosophy mm. and PSY stands for psychology mm. and then the doctorate. So doctorate mm. of psychology, mm. which I recommend a PsyD is a, it's a more, uh, the focus of the education is clinical assessments and diagnosing and treating mental disorders where a PhD mm. is a little more philosophical and for people that are more research focused. So, mm. but my goal was to meet with people face to face and do psychological assessments. Well, and that's what you do. And, and that's why I'm excited to have you on here because I, truth be told in my history, I, I am like a lot of people. I'm very interested in serial killers and criminals. And I thought I was going to be a prosecutor and it didn't, it didn't end up being that way. We can talk about that another time, but you actually work with, you know, with, with, uh, criminals and, and doing psychological assessments in your forensic practice. And how, how did you, have you always been interested in that? How did you come to become a forensic psychologist? Yeah, that's always the question, right? You know, why, yeah. how did we end up where we're at? Like, help me make sense of this. Like, who, mm. who are you? Why would you want to be put in, in rooms with these people? And I just, I, I am so curious about people and their behaviors. And I want to understand. And I think early on, I, I had a lot of family members with issues and my grandma had schizophrenia and had voices and voice commands. And as a child, I watched this and I studied her. Finally, when I was a teenager, I set up a camcorder and I interviewed her to write a report for school. Like, I got to find out what's happening here. We need I need answers. And so I. So let me ask you, you, you actually interviewed your grandma for, for high school to do a report on schizophrenia or just on your grandma in general? I think the assignment was we were tasked to interview someone who we thought was interesting. And you're like, and she is the most interesting person I know. <laughs> she, she was. Yeah. Um, She had voice commands one night to paint her house red and purple. And she did. And she did all these bizarre things. She, res she was responding to voices all the time and talking wow. to them. And I just also wanted to be sure this genetically was not <laughs> going to be my future. 
<laughs> like well, if I figured figured out the hack, I could prevent it from happening to me. Like what went wrong here? Cause yeah. I need that. I'd like to have my mind. I'd like that not to be me. Right. So I watched her cry and be absolutely paranoid and psychotic. And I would question her, but this, how do you, what makes you think it's real? Like I was genuinely asking her and I realized it is her reality. It is. And to be in her head would be a entirely different world. That's, um, that's interesting. That's interesting because this idea I, I've, you know, I've talked to psychologists in the past and they talk about this, like, my reality, it's kind of turned into like this whole my truth thing, which, you know, is a whole philosophical idea, but like, but this whole react, like they're experiencing it this way. Where you have you, so have you, is that kind of the crux of what got you interested in, in dealing with mental illness? That definitely, I just, I was so curious about her and it just, it bent my mind and everyone in the family was very religious and they said she was demon possessed and mm. they sent an exorcist to the house. Oh. Wow. Okay. And everyone told a different story that she was filled with demons. And so as a child, I was really scared if, when are they coming to get me? How do they, you know, I was paranoid, scared of what was happening with her. And so I really sought to study it. And the entire family believed she was demon possessed. And in the end, cut to chase, Risperidol, an antipsychotic, stabilized her. And she didn't have psychosis and we had a normal conversation. It just wow. took decades for the family to actually get to the point to allow her to have medication and the appropriate treatment. And then that's pretty magical if you think about it. Wow. Oh, now she just spent her whole life not needing to be psychotic. So medications can be really helpful, yeah. but it just goes to show how strong like a family belief system is and it can be delusional yeah. in nature. Well, that that's actually a good segue into something I wanted to talk to you about. Cause I know in the past we, we, you have uh, kind of provided um, some insight into like uh, the Lori Vallow uh, case which had some religious undertones. Do you see, do you see that often in your work? Do you see like kind of extremist religious views being used to promote criminal behavior? I do. And mm. while most people are going to think a oh, religion is a mitigating factor, right? It prevents mm. you from harming yourself or harming someone. We, we tend to think that like as a protective factor for suicide. It's dangerous 
beliefs can get so extreme and we know this right mm-hmm. with religion that you have a belief that you can end other people's lives or that you're told you must or mm-hmm. and i have encountered numerous people while working inpatient in a psych facility who were on hold for a danger to others so they were going to kill someone and they're explaining to me why they had to it's mm-hmm. part of their mission from god and there usually is a strong their belief which is delusional that they mm-hmm. have to go do this thing and a lot of time during covid if you can believe mm-hmm. this i worked inpatient in the psych hospital i had don't know why it did that <laughs> i was gonna say they're like high five it's like i don't know why COVID. fingers yeah <laughs> no not don't go there um i saw people from the general population even a psychiatrist attorney nurses being psychiatrically hospitalized so their their mental health went way down people that you normally wouldn't expect to be psychiatrically hospitalized. Um, But they got really influenced by what was happening around in the world, further isolated themselves, paranoia increased, and some of them, one in particular man had a belief like he had to go sacrifice his children in order to save the world and COVID to end. And he had a sacri- like like a human sacrifice? Like he needed to kill them on an yeah. altar or what? Wow. Uh yeah. Take 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 him up to the kill hill and you know kill them. Was he was he a particular religion or was he like was he part of a cult or no, he wasn't, but you know, mix these religion a lot of these people will be following a certain religion and it becomes their paranoia gets enhanced they get a little more out of touch with reality and more isolated and thoughts start getting off Mm -hmm. and then what happens in a lot of these cases these people they further and further separate themselves from society like they're in the woods for months and they come up Mm. They're thinking there's no one else to counterbalance their thought process. Right, right. It gets all caught up in their head and they come, they emerge from the woods and they're like, yeah, they're on this new mission. Well, that's what's so interesting is that the isolation part of it, like you you hear about people, you know, who join these cults that go into like a, you know, a compound and they're very isolated from the rest of the world. And then they come out with these extremist views or even, you know, you, you see this in, in lots of religions where, especially in areas where that are kind of remote, you know, small towns and things like that, um, these people become isolated and then these extremist views emerge. Do you think that that isolation component is what changes, like what, what makes it kind of become extreme? Yeah, if you think about it, uh, think about a pedophile grooming a victim or any mm. person that wants to. I want to groom you to convert you to my religion or whatever. I have to, you know, remove you from your environment. 
have you start, you know, you know, stop, you know, seeking, um, advice from your friends and family. Like I can segregate mm -hmm. you and start brainwashing you into, um, to even start questioning your own reality or questioning your mm -hmm. own thoughts and judgment and that I know what's best for you. And they never liked you anyway. And you, they, they don't have your best interests. I'm offering you all these things and you just, over time, you can just brainwash someone. Hmm. Yeah. So you, now you deal, talk about that you deal with pedophiles, you do assessments on pedophiles, serial killers, domestic violence, mental health issues. How is it, like, I got to imagine that you have to be a certain kind of person to be able to do that and not become completely disenfranchised with the world, right? What is it that you think it takes to be able to do the work that you do and deal with these people in an effective way? <laughs> yeah, there's there's probably more than one factor, but I always like to joke and say that I'm in touch with my antisocial side. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I'm curious. What do you mean by that? Tongue and cheek humor, but like antisocial is not what people really think it means. It doesn't mean you're not social. It means like that criminal thinking. Like mm -hmm. I need to think like a criminal. Mm -hmm. I need I need to be able to take on that perspective. And And uh, without being a criminal myself, but I can take on a lot of different other perspectives and tolerate everything they say and do. And it doesn't, I'm not coming from this place of judgment in my evaluation. I'm just there to get information or understand their perspective or their experience. Mm. And I think that's very hard for people to do to sit with someone who is doing horrible things who's, and you want to have a, a visceral reaction, uh -huh. an emotional response, right? If someone's telling you all the ways they harm someone, but I have enough curiosity. I want to keep, I want to have them keep talking and tell me, more about how they lured their victim, how they got them to that spot. Walk me through it. And you know what? I'll tell you this. They want to be understood. Mm. And they want to be heard. And I, I have heard that so many times listening to people. They really mm. want to be heard. Do they you really feel like tell you, their story? Do you feel like these people? Do you think that they, I'm curious about the mindset of somebody who's willing to do these, these things. Cause I, cause quite frankly, I think, um, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, but I think a lot of people discount their own ability to do pretty terrible things, you know, uh, like they, they think of the, of the, the pedophile, right. And they think of like the caricature of what a pedophile looks like some weird guy with no teeth, you know, who's just looking in the shadows. It's going to snatch your kid up and throw him in a van. Uh, 
And the thing is, is that's probably not who 95% of the pedophiles are. They're your, your best friend, your uncle, these people who are very charming and very charismatic, who have a way of getting close to you, uh, you know, and, and, and so do you, but do you think that these people, there's something in their lives where they weren't heard or that they weren't, uh, they weren't understood, bullied, something like that, you know, had a bad childhood that, that ultimately makes them become this way? Have you been able to pinpoint what it is that makes somebody one of these criminals? Well, talking about child predators, I interviewed, I think about 38 victims last year um, who were molested or raped at, at kids camps, church camps, YMCA, oh, Boy Scouts. Uh -huh. And so they all told me their story. And so all the leaders, they were leaders, pastors, mm. youth pastors, uh, volunteers, scout, all those, these people place themselves in those positions in a position of power or authority. And I would always, by listening, because I've listened to perpetrator stories, but I also listened to the victim's and their story of the trust. It's someone they know and who they target and why. Um, children are easier targets, but in a family that has less resources or there's one absent parent and the perpetrator is always going to offer something that they need, a ride home, want to go for ice cream. Have you ever tried pot? Like, you guys need some money, like any foot in the door technique. And then they are a friend and they do provide and they fill a void and they continue to fill that void. And then they start violating boundaries with that child mm -hmm. over time. Um, and I will tell you this, that all of the sexual offenders I have ever interviewed in my lifetime, they all have been sexually abused. Mm. And then they, and people need to understand. Then they go reenact the whole scene. They recreate it now, though. They're not the victim, they're the person in the power and authority. They take on that perspective now. Wow. So tell me, uh, you, we were talking about, you, you talked about these church counselors and the, and the victims you've interviewed and these people in a position of power. So tell me, like, they're in a position of power. Uh, how do you know that whether these people are, say, trying to groom your kid or is it just trying to trying to be a good person and help out? Well, one of the things I would look for is someone having an intense interest in you, overly interested in you, and they're coming at you with just praise and adoration. That's not normal mm. for mm. me to just be like, oh my God, you're so, I don't know. <laughs> People you're, are like, thumbs up. Just, so just love bombing you. Oh my God, you are so amazing. Look at you. 
Oh my God. Mm. Never met anyone like you before. You're, oh, you're so handsome. You're so incredible, talented. And in it, that approach, we know this, it feels good. Mm -hmm. You can feel yourself being like, really? I've never, no one's ever said all those things to me before. And you start liking that person. You like spending mm -hmm. time with them. <laughs> and, you know, so really that's a red flag. And you're going to see that just the sort of love bombing. Mm -hmm. This, they have all the time in the world for you. They have all mm -hmm. the interest in you. Everything you're doing, wow, unbelievable. Like, I'd love to spend more time with you. It's just not normal. Why does this person have so much time for me? Why are they so interesting, interested in me? Mm -hmm. And so the trick is they'll really make you feel special, loved, wanted. And they're feeling they're an emotional need or a gap they've identified. Oh, mm -hmm. your mom, she doesn't have time. I understand. You know, so let me let me ask you these people that you're interviewing. I mean, do you think that they are consciously doing that? Like they've zeroed in on somebody and they're like, "Aha, right? This is somebody I can groom." Or do you think yes. it's a subconscious? So they they know what they're doing. You know, there's different types of offenders, um, but they know what to look for. If they're a real predator, and I'm looking for someone to have this type of relationship with. If you watch the interviews with child predators, they say they're looking for their in. They're looking for the single parent, too busy, kids at home. They know which families not to mess with. You want to teach your kids not to be an easy victim. Mm. Not to be a victim at all, but. Right. Um, uh, and then they start, they'll create secrecy or alliance like. This will be our little secret, you know, mm. Mm. like that they, they a lot of times would introduce porn or marijuana or a drug, something deviant that the person wants or it's new to them. It's exciting. It's a cigarette. And then it's like, well, I won't tell your mom. Mm. Wow. And then, and then they start, you cross an intimate level. Mm. And then you're in a relationship. If you now you and I are holding secrets for each other, or I'm not going to tell your wife. <laughs> so then that person will start sharing more secrets, right? And then get you to share things. So just another red flag is that this relationship is moving much quicker than I'm comfortable with. I don't, I'm not feeling comfortable. And that's our sign. All of these types of relationships are moving way too quickly. And mm. even just not healthy re dating relationships, right? Or right. I said, I, said oh, I was like, I don't, I don't know if we're even talking about child predators anymore. <laughs> we're just talking I know, about I know. narcissistic people in general. Yeah. Right. Because they got to move fast. We, we got to get married. Uh, the courthouse closes at five. So right. can you meet me down there? <laughs> uh -huh. Right. And they're trying to catch you before. You I mean, it's catch going to way too doing. fast. Yeah. Um. So they're going to cross those boundaries at a much more rapid rate. Mm. Wow. So 
So, and of course, physically, suddenly you find yourself like, they're saying, I love you, mm. you know, day three. And then they're like, but I love you. So like, we can have sex now or something, you know, right. it's just, it's, and it's, so you really just have to question someone's intentions. Um, mm. And yeah. obviously I, I don't trust people. Yeah. You know, it's funny as I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of this, I'm going, I'll go, it, it's, I'm smiling a little bit and I'm laughing. People who are listening to it and not watching the video probably can't, they can't see that. But it's funny because as a member of the Mormon church, like people get married super quick. It is common that three days a week, two weeks later, they're telling each other they love each other and they're getting engaged. So they're probably going like, oh man, what if, the, what if I'm with a narcissist, but maybe a cultural thing. What are some things that you would say in this type of thing that you I mean, you've, you've mentioned some of them, but what are some of the things that you would look for to realize, oh, I might have, I might be in a bad situation? Because, because I've found in relationships in particular, you're very, you're only objective for a very short time. You know what I mean? Uh, so what are some things that you would say are red flags you cannot ignore? Well, you know, thinking about this, um, and I'm, I'm thinking of this horrible cold case, this rape murder that I've been kind of going through and looking at all the, how the relationship started. And obviously everyone's focused on how it ended. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things early on that I look in these psychological autopsies, so that's when someone's murdered and they're not there anymore to tell their story. Right. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, I have a journal and I have information to, to understand that person's perspective, the victim's perspective, and even statements from the perpetrator. Um, the point would be like, we never want to get in relationships with people like this. But the question is this, when did I enter into a relationship with this person? Like, mm. and so they're trying to get cross these boundaries really quickly with you to be in a relationship with you. Mm -hmm. And when I say relationship, think about a stranger on the street who you just brushes past you. You're not in a relationship. So when does it become the moment when he gives you his number and you call him or you're on a, you're eating together and you're like, it's harmless. We're not even in a relationship, but But you are, though, yeah. like if you're sitting and having an intimate dinner, you're sharing details about yourself or like that person now, like has maybe set their sights on you. Mm. <clears throat> and so it's you want to be really careful who you even allow in that space, mm. because once you get to a point. Um, do you remember Brian Kohlberger going on dates on Tinder? Mm -mm. I don't know that. That's he's an, he's an alleged, uh, killer who killed, um, the four university of Idaho students. Oh, okay. 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 okay so these people are on Tinder and they're on dating apps and mm -hmm. he was. And this girl went on a date with him. 
And this is just an example of how not to get in a relationship with someone. You don't just take, just because someone, like you're going on a date, you're now crossing the line of, you're now intimate with someone. Like they have access to you. Mm -hmm. So this person that went on a date with him, she gives him her home address. He picks mm. her up. You just messed up. Mm. He already know he knows where you live and is inside your apartment now. And you're like, mm. oh well, we're not dating. Well, so what happened after the date? Things got weird because mm. and she didn't maybe want to be in the date anymore. But guess what? He's your ride back to your apartment. Mm. Why would you ever do that? Mm. Guess what? You didn't want him to follow you back up the steps. Mm -hmm. it, but he did. And he shut the door behind you. And now he's mm -hmm. sitting on your couch. And in this story of this girl that I'm talking about, she got weirded out. And yet here we are sitting together on a couch and he's trying to touch her yeah. and think she's not comfortable. So she locked mm -hmm. herself in the bathroom and pretends to be sick. And never come out. And he ends up leaving eventually while well, she's locked in the bathroom because she's actually having some fear. Like there's something not right. right going on. If you're locking yourself in the bathroom of your own apartment, that's yeah. that's a that's a red flag. So he texts her later saying, You have good birthing hips. Which is that's a, I mean, a, a tried and true flirty text, you know, works, so works made, every time. <laughs> yeah. So he made some odd statements that made her feel uncomfortable. And obviously, she didn't become his victim. But do you see how quickly that escalated? It was just yeah. a swipe on an app, and they just went to the movies. I personally wouldn't go to him. A movies with a stranger in a dark place like that's not right but but again that person suggests it and you're you're not comfortable with it and you do it anyway that's a red flag yeah they're testing your boundaries mm. testing your boundaries like, oh well, i'll pick you up they're offering you something mm. that normally it's not bad for someone to pick you up but this person's offering you they're a stranger. You don't know them. You shouldn't give them access to your house or your address. You shouldn't mm -hmm. let them in your door. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and then they're saying they're trying to kiss you and you should. Now you're in a situation, right? Yeah, right. But you, but you have to be, you have to prevent all this from happening or you it, end up dead. It's so, and it's so crazy to think. I mean, like, it's so crazy to think that this is something that particularly women have to deal with. Like you have to manage the expectations of men all the time. <laughs> like you always are constantly worried about, you know, is this person who is stronger than me going to come back? I mean, just even the thought, like it, it would never cross my mind if I would, you know, never been on Tinder, but if I ever was, I, it would never cross my mind to be like, yeah, I got to worry about this woman, you know, staying in my house. You know what I mean? It's just not something that would come across, but it's so fascinating that like, that is something that women legitimately have to worry about. 
Like they have to worry about, oh, I can't give this guy my home address and he's going to be my right home. And I don't know how I'm going to get out of there. And he might attack me. If, if, I, you know, if I don't give him what I want, is he going to get aggressive? Like, it's just your, a woman's reality is so different. I mean, as a six foot seven man, like who's never really been afraid for his life in any situation, it's really, it's really shocking. And, and I think that, you know, turning that back into what we're going to talk about, what I find so fascinating is that you are willing to go into the belly of the beast, into the penitentiaries and, and psych wards and talk to these people that, you know, have like hurt people. Do you ever get scared when you go in those places? Well, <clears throat> scared. And let's talk about fear. That fear is a healthy reminder that you might not be safe. It's actually a physiological response of like, right? Heightened energy, maybe cortisol just flooding through. Like my sympathetic nervous system is activated because I'm not safe. And mm -hmm. so fear is normal and healthy. And there are certainly times when I'm, my sense of awareness is heightened mm -hmm. and we are not safe. And this is dangerous. <clears throat> and I've encountered many situations. You're not safe. And someone's right in the room with you and there, there's no safety. Mm. Like you have seconds or any movement coming toward you, you need, you need to move. Mm. Um, and so I've escaped a lot of situations um, that danger was coming. It was happening or they're swinging. They're coming for you. Um and so being proactive before you go into the room, how the room's set up, how much distance is from you. And I always arm link, arms link the way. Mm -hmm. I would never, because any swing can catch you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have, so my reaction time, I have, you'd have to step in to make contact with me. Mm. So I never stand closer than arm's length away. And anybody trying to test my boundary always steps forward and I step back. Mm. And then I command them, we don't. It's like an invisible line. You do not. We have distance. Of course, if I'm, I'm in an interview, there's a table between us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... Man. So can you think what, what, give me an example of like, uh, who would you say is like the, the most, was there somebody who sticks out in your mind as the most alarming person that you, or maybe even more fascinating person that you've ever encountered in your work as a forensic psychologist? Hmm. I've had a lot of interesting interviews. I, I had an interest. I've had some interesting interviews at the state hospital where I would evaluate individuals to see if they're ready for release from society. So, people that had maybe murdered someone and got off on insanity. And so, the timeline of when they could be released, it's 
unclear with sentencing. So through a conditional release program, they can be evaluated every six months to see if they are suitable for placement in the community. Um, and so I interviewed people that had murdered people. And I also worked in the community with murderers who had murdered their family. Um, when you say in the community, like people who've been released? Yeah, they'd all been okay. released. So Most you're working them, with them, you're working with them after release to just make sure they don't reoffend or make sure they're acclimating well? I was for for my postdoc training, I did a year for Conrep. So I I was in San Francisco and there was like 24 individuals who'd been released from prison or the state hospital. So they had a serious mental illness and they had committed a serious violent felony. And so I did their groups. I did their therapy. I spent all day with them, you know, four days a week. Like I worked four hour ten, um, four tens. So I really got to know these people. And then in addition, my job was going to the state hospital and evaluating because eventually they have to let some of these people out. So I worked with some very violent people mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, I will say some people who there was an interesting guy, he had raped a woman and he, he cut her up into tiny pieces and he got off on cocaine induced psychosis and he went to the state hospital. He didn't, he didn't want to go to prison. He ended up, going through the state hospital system and he eventually got out and he never did sex offender treatment. He got away with that crime. Murder was just concealing the crime and he was mm. frightening. Mm. And what, he, what, what would he mean? Like what was it about him? I mean, that whole thing sounds frightening, but I mean, what was it particularly that was frightening about him? He used intimidation uh, to everyone around him. He can control people. He They would do anything for him because fear moves people to compliance. And to watch it, to watch everyone around him comply with him, like his power, was deeply disturbing. Wow. So you could see what type of person he was. And mm -hmm. then for me to interact with him, it's um, he definitely was threatening and intimidating. And we had some, we had, we went head to head and toe to toe multiple times. Um I imagine when you say that, like, I, you know what I view? It's like, is it like a, I don't remember if it's like chimpanzees or gorillas or something where if they run after you, but you don't move, you don't sense the fear, they won't chase you anymore. Is it something like that? Or like, how could you, how can you sit there? You say you have a toe to toe with this person who uses violence and intimidation. How did you withstand that? What tools did you use? <laughs> Um, 
I, I was, I would tell this person no, and I would be tough, really tough boundaries and enforce them. And I do this all the time. I had violent people out of prison, like you're with them mm -hmm. just like this and there's, you're not safe. Okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think you can tap into a, a certain part of yourself where you just command like what they're going to not do. And you're mm -hmm. going to listen to me and you're going to back off mm -hmm. and you will not talk to me like this. You will step aside. Mm -hmm. Nope. And you have such strong boundaries and then you enforce them and you remove yourself. And anyone that even talks to me in a certain tone or they're not going to respect me, like a lot of them would go cross a line in the room where I told them not to go past, you're done. So you have such strict boundaries, they can't even like the access mm. to you. And then they're going to test you all the time. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. know that. So you don't even let them take, fall through with your word. Like if they're mm -hmm. in my group and they're causing me trouble in this group setting, what was the group rules? And what did I say the consequence was? And so you can go now. And you yeah. just do it in front of everyone. So then you just start. You, suddenly people see you as the power person. I mm -hmm. overplay your power. You don't. Mm -hmm. I'm not backing down for you in this scenario. So now and this guy. going to be a consequence. Right. Now this guy. So he. It sounded like he eventually was released from the state hospital. Do you feel in that circumstance that he beat the system kind of? Unfortunately, I could tell you some stories of people who shouldn't have been released and it's a, uh, some of these people, they finagle their way out. They lie. They feign symptoms. They'll feign psychosis, feign memory loss, like cry, beg, get their way out. And who they really are is something very insidious. And mm. it's too late, though, if you've already let them out mm. or they serve their time. But they learn to be so manipulative and they learned through the whole time they can just manipulate people. And so it is so concerning for me as a forensic psychologist if other people, like other forensic psychologists who counter these, encounter these people can't see that. Mm -hmm. And that was, the, that was my problem. Because some of these psychologists were like, oh, I'm going to help them. And he's just doing so good. I'm like, he is pulling the wool over your eyes. You are being played. You're being mm -hmm. lied to. But the problem was some of these, and I'm going to say females, but it can happen to anyone. Guess what they're doing? You look so nice today. You're the mm -hmm. best therapist I've ever had. Like no one, 
no one could change my life the way you did. I just, that's what they would do. Mm-hmm. And you would watch it happen. And of course, when you see someone for who they really are, like I see you, who mm-hmm. you are, like you're not giving me compliments. And so no. they're going to actually try to destroy my me or get me in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Distract, distract the issue from them. And so I've seen, I'm going to say it, nurses, psychologists, these females getting impregnated by these people Mm. or getting themselves in this relationship. And wow. Um, Because that, that person like had an emotional void. They were being given all this praise and compliments. This person comes to them showing all this interest in them. And that's how it starts. Well, that sounds so, that's, that sounds so counterintuitive because I mean, you're there with this person because you know that they have the ability to groom and yet they groom the therapist. Like that's either they're really, really good. Like the the criminal is incredibly good at grooming or the therapist ain't doing that great. Right. I mean, I guess what makes you different than those people? Like how can you see it when they can't? I'm not going in there because I need a a compliment. I'm not (laughs) doing this job because I need my self-esteem's not intact. I need need to feel good about myself. I don't need anyone's approval or permission. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I don't care what you think about me. Like, I wouldn't care if I had makeup, no makeup on, like, or what I look like. If you think I'm ugly, I don't care. Mm-hmm. That's, you need, so these type of people are always going to look for some vul- vulnerability, some weakness, and you can just see it. Like, if I wanted to look for that, I can look, go, <laughs> you ever go to the state hospital or prison, you go somewhere, look around you. This is so I've been to state hospital. This is what you see. You know, people are all like, you see these people really mentally ill and they're just, but then you see the other people who shouldn't be there and they're like this Mm. tracking you. And you're like, yeah. Uh, Um, I think you need to have really good emotional boundaries. So mm. my self-esteem or my emotional state isn't, contingent upon someone's approval and that's Mm. a real problem for people like oh i'm gonna help the world i'm a social worker i'm all my clients love me like no all my clients don't love me like they're in Mm -hmm. trouble like i (laughs) and i will i'll tell you a, a story i had one client he was a sex offender he raped some people He's on my- <laughs> I'm sorry. I just gotta say, you just it, it's so you just say it so nonchalantly, and it's just so it's just so. I don't know why that makes me laugh, but it's like and, it was like this person just like raped some people, and I'm just and like, so I'm, wow. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm also can't tell you the details. So in my head, the details about who yeah. and what and the circumstances and where it happened and the report I read, I'm like, I can't confidentiality. Yeah, yeah. I, so I'm like, this is really vague. I'm giving you the vaguest. I'm just, yeah. I'm trying not to say anything. Yeah, uh, I get to compromise it. I get it. Yeah. So 
where was I even going with the story? You, like, so well, I, you were just you were just telling me looking around the state hospital. You were saying like you had, you know, that people are tracking you, and you said you had this one uh, oh. pedophile who had raped some people. Yeah. So he, I mean, he every time he saw me, his face lit up. I know this sounds creepy, but like it is creepy. Okay, mm -hmm. but he's just totally would be like. Oh, Dr. Dana, like, oh, you're so good. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just so adorning me with praise and like, oh, you're so good, good. You're overly compliant, overly submissive. Like, probably would have bent on his knees for me. Like, he's, mm -hmm. but that's not normal. Right. Right. Obviously, he's playing me. Why is he, why, what is up with this? Right. Mm -hmm. And I pulled his records that had never been gotten before and i found out i read i read what i read <laughs> mm -hmm. regarding his crimes i'm like this guy is um this guy's there's a whole nother side to him right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um i caught him in lies about he was requesting to go places and i would follow up like he said he had an appointment somewhere and I go okay great I'm, I'm gonna call and they're like we never heard of him said he was mm. going to a doctor's appointment never heard of him not a client there he made up stuff and but do you understand the manipulation he's just trying so hard to be like oh no I'm just going to a doctor appointment you know to get my eyes checked you know mm. and it's yeah. none of that is true and you have to check up on these things. And then you find they're lying about something much more insidious, which mm. then I come to find out. And so it's all a mirage. This mm -hmm. someone being overly interested in me, overly praising me. Like, look at the motive. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. but why? But, but my job is to... And I always tell people, because I worked in jail, that we don't give compliments on looks or or physical appearance. And I, I wouldn't allow that for other mentally ill people to do that to others, because that's grooming. Mm. I would teach them another way. Like, if you enjoyed my lesson today, right? You you learned about, and I reframed it, then my value comes from you're going to answer these questions correctly, or I'm going to quiz you and you can, at the end of the group, you're going to state, oh, what, what, what was valuable or what your takeaway is. So you have a different way of getting feedback. It's not appropriate to give compliments physically. And you should, this is so many different stories I can think of, but like, the average person would be like, oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. And you just you just need to be careful with that. Because mm. they're they're gonna play you. And you just really have to have very strict boundaries. And before I do any group with anybody, and mm -hmm. before we have a I I do a I lay down the rules. Mm. 
So if I present myself to a group, I say all the rules and we talk about rules for a really long time. Everybody explains them to me. We come to a full agreement of all the rules. Uh, the rules are posted and then we all, and then we know the consequences for them. So it means if you interrupt and we discuss the rule, you'd be returned to your cell. Then that's the rule and that's what will, what will happen. And the whole group will agree with me because we talked about this. So anything inappropriate. So it's really important to have these really tough boundaries. You set them, you say them ahead of time. And then no one's going to violate my boundaries. But if they did or they try, I make an example of them. And and so, <laughs> so you you strike me as somebody who has been uh, very successful in what she does. And it's that you've talked a little bit about forensic psychologists who are not so successful. Uh, what do you think the characteristics of a of a um, successful forensic psychologist would be what kind of person would be good at at doing this well i really do believe you have to have good boundaries mm -hmm. and boundaries is that covers a lot of things so physical boundaries obviously mm -hmm. and uh, emotional boundaries that's a really big one you need to know <laughs> When you say emotional boundaries, do you mean like, hey, you're not allowed to compliment my looks and, you know, this is a strictly client-patient relationship or, I mean, a doctor-patient relationship or what do you mean by that? Yeah, that could be verbal boundaries too, but uh, emotional meaning like if I'm sad or I'm down or I, my self-esteem is low and you're going to work hoping that your work's going to fulfill you and you're going to get emotionally filled, that's not a good emotional boundary. Like you need mm. to be aware of yourself emotionally where you're at, like know your limits mm -hmm. and you, I think that's a, a, a mistake that a lot of people in this, these career fields, which you see a lot of women go into nursing or therapy mm. or social work, they're givers, they're caretakers. They want that feedback. They even want a hug and they want to feel good and feel nourished and come. They do. And that's not healthy, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's a, there's a balance, obviously. Yeah, but, but you're saying and, like, I, you shouldn't, you shouldn't come to this type of job hoping to get some sort of external validation. <laughs> yeah. And we're, I am really talking about forensics and, but it's a slippery slope and, I've seen a lot of people fall. And so that's not good to be in a position where you're in a deficit emotionally mm -hmm. and then they feel it, feel it. Yeah. That's, because, you, because you're dealing with very manipulative people that know that they can do that to get what they want. Right? And they know that. And they right. know that. Yeah. And you should know that. And you mm -hmm. should be aware of that. But if you're an emotional deficit, like I'm depressed, my husband's leaving me, I have no money, and even just you lose kind of sight, you're so you're vulnerable. You start talking mm -hmm. about the inmates hear you talking about finances, your husband leaving you, he cheated you. Now he's going to come in and offer you something to fill that void emotionally or money, a bribe, mm -hmm. blackmail, mm -hmm. like the whole anatomy of a setup. 
is they're going to look for some weakness in you. Mm. Your job is to be aware of your weaknesses more than mm. they are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that just seems like something good to do for anybody. Right. I mean, not just people going into forensics, but also being aware that because there's a lot of manipulating people out there. Maybe they're not criminally criminals, but they, you know, there's a lot of people who would who would take advantage of those types of things. But you think in your specific field, it's incredibly important because you may fall victim to some of these people. Yeah, I even had somebody recently try to bribe me with money and. The holes, it happens all the time with people. Mm. Um, and they were trying to get me to meet for a lunch, a free lunch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Right, right. And, and that we could talk about that when it comes to dating too. But um, yeah. what is their motive? And no, I'm not, I don't need a meetup with you. Mm -hmm. For what reason? Can we not have this conversation now on the phone? Tell me it is what you want now. And I'll tell you what I can do or not do. And I'll let you know if I'm going to take your case or not. And, mm -hmm. and then they're trying to control me. Well, but I'm going to pay for this or I'm going to do this. And it's like, no, we're going to do a video interview. I'm the one that's in control. I'll decide if I'm going to work with you. And it's a no right now. And this, this is, this is another example. This person who's trying to retain me on a case emails me and says something like, you're so beautiful on and on like this stuff. And so mm -hmm. I immediately responded. I said, first of all, I, I laid down like four rules and I told him this is a professional relationship and you do, don't address me by that. I listed like four other things. So I just wanted to set the boundary. This isn't that. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. This isn't. And then he tried to gaslight me and say, well, I wasn't calling you beautiful. I was calling the email beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, and it got, it's just all went downhill from there. And so. Yeah. That's, and he's uh, like, well, there's, there's going to be a lot of money in, in this for you, for your statement. And it's like, no. And never met up with him. Conversation over. Like, it's just, I can see where this is going. You're manipulative. Mm -hmm. You can't reveal to me the facts about the case because. They're not good. Right. <laughs> so I don't I don't want to do business with you. Already it's looking pretty snaky. And I'm not. And this is how I think. I'm gonna meet up. Suddenly you're putting cash in my pocket and now you're bribing me. And how did I get in that situation? Well, how about I just not get in that situation? Right. Don't show up. Like and make it really clear what your job is, what you can do or not do. So I always mm. tell people, this is my role. I'm like, this is not, this is not what we will be doing. So it's just very, it's very important to have clear boundaries with people. And especially yeah. working in this population, I've like, I was like classes on boundaries at the psych hospital. And <laughs> I, I taught them. 
And it was really fun. And these people all, it's so important because these people have had their boundaries violated. They've all right. been abused physically, mm -hmm. sexually, mentally. And so mm -hmm. I demonstrate appropriate boundaries between me and them as a doctor patient. We would never, it's not appropriate. So mm. that they understand that if someone else tries to do things like that to them, it's not appropriate. Mm. Let me ask you about boundaries real quick and, and tell you, and, and I, I think I know the answer. I think that this is a, a an issue with a, a lot of abusive relationships, right? It's like sometimes the abusers, particularly people who are narcissistic in nature, which it sounds like a lot of these criminals are as well, um, they almost look at your boundaries as a challenge. You know, like you, you give a boundary and they want to jump over it. And if you're not somebody who's very strong with your boundaries, you know, it becomes a, a real problem. How important, I mean, this probably seems obvious. How important is the follow three on a boundary? Well, a boundary isn't a boundary. If you just say it, you have to enforce it and follow through. And that is the part where most people fail. They're like, you're never going to talk to me like that again. Right. Right. And then they do. And then you're like, you're and never then, talk to me like that again. Right. You haven't even finished the statement and they're still cussing you out. And then that goes right. on like we, and so so a boundary isn't just setting, it's like the consequence. If you keep mm -hmm. talking to me in that tone of voice, I'm walking away and leaving. Mm -hmm. And and so the boundary is not saying that and just setting the consequence. It's it's doing it. So there's still that's when you have to make good on what you said. Otherwise, you're letting them violate your boundaries and they have no respect for you, and your word means nothing. Yeah, it if almost you seemed... say what the consequence is, you need to do it. Otherwise, you have no boundaries. Yeah. And that's a thing, right? Is that like, I sometimes wonder with this situation, like, you know, with these boundaries that, you know, it's almost better that you don't even set it if you're not willing to, like, because you, like you said, yes. when you're setting a boundary, you're like, here's what's going to happen. You know, you can't do this. If this, then this. But if you are not willing to actually set the consequence, like do go forward with the consequence, like you're almost better to not even set the boundary. You see what I'm saying? Because because it's almost like if you and, and I have personal experience with this, like if you set a boundary with someone you care about, but you're not willing to 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 set the cons, you know, to to do the consequence. Well, then, you know, that happens so many times. And then you go and then finally, maybe after doing it a bunch of times, you finally go through with the consequence and then they go, well, how was I supposed to know you were serious this time? You know, what I mean? like it's you're almost it's 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 maddening, you know, exactly. And think about it with kids. This is, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. this is what we teach our kids who are who are basically little narcissists themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like your word doesn't mean anything unless you actually fall through. So if I say you're done with video games at 10, then so you just need to make sure that you, your word is solid. If I say mm -hmm. something that I mean it and I'm consistent across time, or if I say no, no means no, it's not like maybe. Or, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. really clear on your words. Yes means yes. And I taught this so much at the psych hospital because these are people who um, 
they've been violated so much. So it's important yeah. to like demonstrate, but like, yes means yes. Don't say yes if you don't mean yes or you mm. don't want to. Like, or practice saying no. <laughs> we would role play. I would do breakout sessions. Like, what do you do when your drug dealer's coming and you don't want to get high again? Like, we're going to role play. I'm your drug dealer. I'm coming at you with all this good stuff. Like, it seems so funny, but they'd be like, I, uh, uh. so I go, we got to practice. We're going to practice over and over and over again. All like, you already got it. You already got this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, you know, it's interesting. I, I've tried to teach my kids this, particularly when it comes to, you know, their value systems and things of that nature. I, I try to teach them, Hey, listen, you know, you need to decide whether you're going to do that before you even get there. Right. Like, you know, you, you if you, if you, go in understanding this is a line I do not cross. You aren't making the decision when it's time to cross the line. You've already said, I'm not crossing this line. I mean, I think that that's kind of what you're saying is that you, when you're setting a boundary here, you need to be ready with the consequence before you even set the boundary and be and accept it. Otherwise it's like you have no boundary at all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You already made up your mind before you go to the party you know, you've already set your intention. I'm not drinking or I'm going home at this time or I'm leaving on my own or. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and that's, I, I appreciate you're, you're good on time, right? You're, you're doing okay. Or do you need to, yeah. do you have a heart out? Okay, good. So, so this is another question I have then. If you're somebody who struggles with boundaries, like so many do, how do you develop that? Well, I mean, you could work with a therapist just to meet weekly and work on specific boundaries, whether it's mm -hmm. saying no to family or to drugs and alcohol, like whatever mm -hmm. your boundary is. Like emotionally, people are like, uh, what do they say? Um, oh, I'm an empath or stuff like that. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's why I always just give the shirt off my back and I give them all my money and I just, you know, they're on the street mm -hmm. corner and the panhandlers is like, well, that's, you know, so that's a boundary we can work on just because someone asks you for something or someone's in need. You do not owe them anything. You don't even owe right. them a conversation or right. anything like you have to. Mm -hmm. So you can train someone over time to have boundaries, better boundaries. And I did lessons on it with all the populations that I work with. And it was a lot of fun. Wow. Uh, do, you, do you feel like, so, so particularly those populations, particularly the criminal populations that you're talking to that are about to be released, do you find that even those people who probably exhibit some antisocial behavior, when you teach them about boundaries and they own that, that that makes them a more social and more socially appropriate person? Uh, yeah, I've seen lots of benefits with the groups and teaching. And a lot of times I would hear people say, I've never thought about this like this, or I've never, no one ever taught me this. I didn't know. Um, and I taught groups in the jail. I taught adulting 101 and hmm. just different life skills. And I would get to understand how they think through things. 
like mm. what their their deficit is. Uh, so it's just really interesting. A lot of people tend in these situations have lower IQ or haven't been taught a lot of basic concepts about these simple things, adulting 101 or boundaries or emotional regulation. Those are some of the groups I would teach. And as you would teach it and interact with them, you'd realize they just, no one ever taught them these skills. And so it can be really valuable to actually teach some of these people, these skills and them to use it and then follow up. I would have patients or people message me after they left the psychiatric hospital or wherever they would follow up, send me a postcard or leave a voicemail and let me know how they're doing with their life, how they're working on their boundaries, how they're staying sober, like would get, so you do get some good feedback. I mean, the seeds of wisdom that you disperse can fall on few, but like some of the people that take it, you can see a lot of wonderful outcomes with people. Well, and that has to be a, at least some rewarding part of this job, right? Is you, you know, these people who are antisocial, who can't live in the world through your work can go out and live a functional life. That has to be pretty rewarding for you. Yeah, I remember this one inmate that I was working with. He was kind of like a Tasmanian devil, just sort of a mm-hmm. always uh, over the top emotionally or always arguing, getting into trouble. And, you know, after months and months of working with him and doing groups and like just demonstrating normal adult interactions, we have like demonstrating appropriate behavior from myself to them and like getting positive feedback and getting to see some of the changes they made in their life. And then they're getting on their meds or getting stabilized or we start having, they start it's something just starts changing in them. And I remember one man, um, you know, he had problems with alcohol and anger. And I would say, I write reports to the court about you. So if you're still angry, you're still going to cuss me out. You're not taking your meds. Like that's what I'm writing. I speak the truth. You're the one that needs to change, not me. Mm -hmm. So give me something better to write about. And so he ended up making these wonderful changes. He got stable and I ended up writing this the updates to the judge about his behavior. And he went to court and the judge said, I have never seen such wonderful turnaround in behavior. This is like the best report I've ever read. And he was just beaming. So proud. He'd never had a proud moment with authority. Right. Right. Cause, cause he hadn't. Right. So, and he went, he came back and he told me and he was beaming and he had, he got to experience positive reinforcement he got to experience that he he was responsible for that change mm-hmm. he did it he did those things and he got positive feedback and he ended up getting released and getting in touch with family like rekindling relationships with his kids who were estranged from him and different things and and so those are that's really great to see so then that person's not 
likely to re-engage in some of these criminal activities because they've learned a better way. So he, like he, what he wanted was to be heard or have a relationship with his kids or, um, and a lot of these people get trapped into substance abuse and, you know, that's that's something that I, I found really interesting about you was that you make mention, like you have a YouTube channel and uh, you, you know, you're going to start a podcast and, and do these things. And one thing that I've noticed that you, you talk about is substance abuse and you strike me as somebody who is like, you shouldn't be touching that stuff at all. Is that, is that kind of your, your view or how do you view substances like alcohol say it's legal? What do you, what do you think about that? So, um, I, I don't use drugs or alcohol. I don't have a problem with alcohol to have a few times a year. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's not that interesting to me. I just kind of want my brain health to be intact mm-hmm. as I age. <laughs> yeah, right. I, worry, I worry about dementia and other things. And like, I'm focused mm-hmm. on my mental health. So getting a good night's sleep and all those things to be at my optimal performance. So those are just things that would are negative and wouldn't help me or don't mm-hmm. benefit me in any way. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> right. So, and I don't take any medication. I don't need any. I don't want any. I would just really be cautious about that. And I have some siblings that have abused alcohol and drugs to a really severe de- degree. And I watched it my whole life. And then I have one sister who's actually homeless on the street right now. Mm. and is using fentanyl and alcohol. And when I see her, it is the saddest story. It's the most, it's horrifying to see her because she has decompensated to such a severe degree mentally and physically. She's skin and bones and her health is and she's psychotic and she can't protect herself anymore. So she is chronically victimized and we're, we're past a point of no return. Mm. Chronic substance use. There is a point where there's, you've done a lot of brain damage and it worsens your entire situation. Yeah. And they yeah. don't know the imp- level of impairment they're in. And nine out of 10 people I see in custody in these criminal situations, they have a substance use disorder. And part of the problem is they don't see it as a problem, but I'm I'm clear headed and sober. I'm interviewing them and they have no idea like how impaired this conversation is that they're having. They're not able to see it clearly. That's what's so that's that's what I find so interesting about this. And and you know, I've never been uh, you know, I've never used substances in any, you know, real capacity ever. Uh including just medications above Tylenol, you know, and and the thing that is is so interesting is just what you said. Like, they're in jail. 
talking to a forensic psychologist. That doesn't happen unless you've done something really significant and they don't see that hmm, maybe the choices that I have made, particularly with these substances, are affecting my ability. Like the compartmentalization with the people, it's really alarming, right? I mean, it, it, would you say the compartmentalization, am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, most of them aren't even going to admit the substance use is a problem. And that's a, that's a problem in itself. Like they're not even admitting going to jail is a problem or these crimes. They start blaming everyone else, blaming society or like I've had this one conversation reading these charges, these, all these drunken public. And this person's like, yeah, I wasn't even in public. I was in my, in my, in my house. And I said, well, you were <laughs> earlier until you were like not, um, and you didn't have your pants on and you were like down the street. And so that's the part where it's not, you're, you weren't in your house. You forgot you actually weren't in your house. You are just no pants on the street. And now there's uh, a problem, but not only that, you actually, you know, we're fighting people. Okay. And so I'm explaining it and they're like, well, that's crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. They're like, well, I just thought I was in my living room when I was getting undressed. And it's like, well, it turns out, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, th and then you went for a ride. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. And so, so let me ask you, this has just popped into my head. You deal with these people. I mean, the the most difficult people probably there are, in you know, to deal with in America. How are you doing? <laughs> it's a broad question, but like, how are you yeah. doing? You're like, are you okay? Do you why? <laughs> no, it's not. It's um, not like a why. I mean, like, because it's just so interesting. You you, I, for some reason, I've become like a little bit in my community, a little bit of a lightning rod for anybody who has had struggles in their marriages or they're having struggles with their faith or, you know, even sometimes struggles with their kids or whatever they'll, they'll call me. Uh, for some reason, I tend to be the person that they like to lean on, which I'm okay with, but it can get wearing hearing all of these people who are struggling. And, and are you, do you find that? And how do you fight against that? So I'm going to go back to boundaries and I'm, going to say that I get people so many messages, DMs, emails, phone calls, messages of horrific things, um, just not appropriate, even direct messaging me that you've just been raped or this is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. All of that is overwhelming and I can't respond. And I set filters to not have all this come in. But boundary is that, and sometimes blocking, okay, mm -hmm. it's not good for my emotional state to want to go on social media and there's this. So I always let people know that's not appropriate or I'm not going to respond to that. And the only mm -hmm. way to have access to me is to pay and book and there is no free consult. We don't have a mm -hmm. relationship. So I owe you no response. 
And it's really important to set that boundary. Otherwise, it's rude for people to think that I'm just, you know, some sort of 24-7 psychologist just asking me for advice or feedback. Um, one person I used to work with years ago um, was messaging me on Facebook and she was suicidal and then just sort of demanding that I rescue her or something. And it really made me upset because it was attention seeking. It was just manipulative. It was a lot of things. And I ended up blocking her. Uh, otherwise, if I were to give of myself all the time like that, I would be weary, emotionally depleted, bitter, resentful, not able to do my job. Uh, I do not answer the phone. I screen everything and I only make time for people that are in front of me right now. And that's really important that way that I'm just looking to do one thing at a time and not trying to be all over the place. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have that boundaries, emotional boundaries. And then my time is my time, you know, where my, I'm going to the gym or I'm doing self-care. I'm going to yoga, going to the sauna. I'm going to bed early and nobody you don't have to let someone into that time. Like if the, mm. my, my ringer's on silent all the time, like I'm the one, you, no one else is like dictating my time. You have to be just mindful of that with your relationships with others. Cause otherwise you'll feel depleted giving mm. all the time. And that's not a good space for anyone to be in. And it would be unrealistic for me to just be a machine Right. I, right. And so that's, that's just really important for my mental health to have my space, totally. my quiet time, my time, Makes no sense. one's interrupting it. And you can just tell people no. And I say no every day. <laughs> I'm really well, I'm good glad, at it. <laughs> like I'm good at no. I'm glad you, you agreed to come on here. I want to ask one I want to be respectful of your time because you we we sat for an hour and then you've been going for a lot longer. So I very much appreciate it. And I want I don't want to break I don't want to mess your boundaries up. I've already stepped over. No, but, I, but, but I, I allowed this two hour time. I just was like, this will be my time to have the afternoon to do this. And like oh, you know, awesome. Well, I so. appreciate that so much. I have to ask you then. I well, now that I know I have more time, I'm just gonna keep going. No, let me ask you. I, I I'm curious about this because I know so many people who like true crime documentaries. So I'm just going to ask, what kind of movies does like a forensic psychologist watch? <laughs> like, what, what do you, what do you, like, what do you, what, what do you enjoy? Like, I think you can tell a lot about a person by what movies they watch. So what are your favorites? Oh, great. Well, that's, <laughs> so uh, someone just before the show emailed me to watch murder at Christmas or something. They were telling me <laughs> that I needed to watch that. It's like Santa Claus. Uh, somebody dresses up as Santa's Claus, murders the whole family and lights the house on fire. And I said, thank you for that. I'm so glad you didn't recommend like a Hallmark movie where it's like the woman who owns a bakery and is recently divorced, you know, falls in love picking out a Christmas tree. Okay. Cause to me, that's not realistic. So I do like, 
something more mind bending or stimulating psychological thriller that's more realistic. And so, uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I like a good drama or mystery. And I probably will watch that murder. <laughs> you're like, I'm, you're like, oh no, when I'm on my, I'm on my thing, I'm watching all sorts. I'm watching all these different cult documentaries and murder mysteries and things of that nature. You have, that's just what you do, huh? Uh, so a lot of times I find it's a little too close to what I do. And mm. so I don't always find it interesting. Um, do you ever find when you're watching those things? Cause like what I do this with law movies, like I'll watch movies or like law and order or whatever. And I'll just, it almost ruins it for me. Cause I'm like, that's not how that would happen at all. <laughs> you know, do you, you run into that too? Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. You're like that uh, because, killer wouldn't dork like that. That's not what they're really like. <laughs> or a forensic psychologist is prescribing medication Mm, uh, or just mm. different stuff where you're like, gosh, they just, and then everyone has the wrong, they come to the wrong conclusion about what a forensic psychologist does, which is, that's what's happening now. So a lot of students reach out to me and like, well, they don't have a realistic picture of what a forensic psychologist does. Mm. And so I do put educational content out there to describe what I do or don't do. Uh, What's the number one thing that people think you do that you don't? That I go to a crime scene, like a forensic scientist. Mm. Mm -hmm. And even I've seen people make videos about forensic psychology and it's a crime scene and they're picking (laughs) up evidence and all this stuff. And I never do that. (laughs) That's a different career path. So I forensics just gets people all in a tizzy. Like uh-huh. you're obviously standing over a dead body, like right. collecting evidence. And forensics is in the court system or legal system. And so uh, mm. forensic psychologist answers the legal question, which is typically about someone's mental health. Mm. And do you do you also uh, I'm gonna, you know, as a lawyer, I'm going to ask you about your expert work. So in your expert work, do you do some um, evaluations of, say, like sex abuse victims as well? Tell me about that. How does that work for you? What, what do you, what, who is typically hiring you for stuff like that? So I am working on cases in civil law for victims. And so the plaintiff's attorney can hire me as an expert witness to evaluate the individual to assess for uh, damages. And so when I do an eval, a psych eval, you might think, well, she's going to determine if this person has post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Or if they're telling the truth and things like that. But there's a lot of other important factors to look for and like not just a malingering test but if someone has low iq or other mental illnesses that could explain why they didn't report it or why they handled it the way they did um 
I just met with a woman who she was raped by a guard at the prison and she settled for 20 plus thousand dollars. Now you and I that's might it. think no, as, a, as a personal injury attorney, that sounds low. So, <laughs> right. But why? Yeah. And as I, I tested her remotely from jail and her IQ was below 60 mm. and she has a number of problems. She had been abused for so long since she was a child, her, she didn't even understand the level of abuse this was. Mm -hmm. And she was low IQ to a point she couldn't, she wouldn't understand like her options for reporting or what mm -hmm. to do or who to go to. So sadly, people can settle for a really low amount because they don't actually understand their rights. Mm. But those are really important factors to look for. And I think a lot of times it gets overlooked because I assess people and sometimes I'll see their scales are really high for all these disorders. Mm. And it doesn't mean they're lying. They're in psychiatric distress and they're like in acute, they could even be psychotic, like unmedicated, low IQ, it's unsophisticated responses, like what is going on here? And the defense can use that to say, well, they're exaggerating or they're malingering. It's like, no, they're not. They're not even sophisticated enough. To understand what that is. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. it's really important. And then to measure the severity, someone could have to dive deeper into childhood abuse or confounding, you know, complex trauma over the years, it could manifest into other things, chronic health disorders, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. that aren't, we need their medical records. They could have gastrointestinal issues. They could have all these surgeries that were unnoticed. Like you don't think it's important, but it is. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, physiologically, you know, stress over time can have all these other disorders. And so it's important to take a look at the whole picture, even assess for autoimmune disorders, a lot of different things, because that person doesn't know what they don't know when they go mm -hmm. to the doctor. They've never reported it to anyone most of the time. And so it's not like there's this nice, clean history of they went, reported it, that's not how that works. Yeah. But you can find a lot of information in medical records mm. that can support their claim. Um, and so it's just, it's very sad for victims who never felt they had a voice to report. And then mm. reporting in a civil case can feel even more traumatizing than the actual event because they're being questioned, they're being harassed, they're put on the stand, they're deposed, they're re-traumatized, they're crying, they can't sleep. It's a whole new trauma. And so, you know, I really would like to see more victims come forward and make these reports. And the system sometimes is so intimidating. 
It is. And it's funny you bring that up because I, I have this conversation often with my clients. I don't do a lot of sex abuse cases per se, but a lot of even just car accidents or slip and falls. And I always explain because I don't think people realize that when you're a plaintiff in a personal injury lawsuit or even a sex abuse, law, abuse lawsuit, you feel as though you're almost the one on trial because you have to prove everything, including causation and damages, right? You have to prove what, what injuries were caused and what your damages are. And that's usually where the big fight is. Sometimes liability is the fight. But these are the these are the places where it really, you know, they they question everything. And I can imagine for a sex abuse victim, that would be uh very difficult because I, I've had people who just talk about a car accident start crying because it's the first time in any real detail that they've actually talked about it. And then they're being questioned about it. And then they're being questioned, well, when's the first time you went to the doctor? When's the last time you went to the doctor? Oh, did you really report all these things? Oh, well, how come you didn't report this? And I can imagine in a sex abuse case, it would get even worse. I mean, that'd be yeah, really their whole Their whole nightmare is coming to fruition. What they perceive that someone wouldn't believe them, they would be questioned mm -hmm. and or not believed. And now it is happening publicly. Right. Or it's being recorded. Right. You're being interrogated, interrogated. You're being harassed, and they just cave. They don't really know how to explain it. This, right? And, well, and especially when you have shame. Especially when you have victims. A lot of you. You mentioned the victims. They're finding are people who, a lot of the times, have their own mental health issues. Maybe aren't super intelligent. Come from single family homes. Have difficulties in in uh, in explaining their emotions. And uh, and it's just a, it's a huge struggle. It really is for victims. It, it is an intimidating process. Just doing it for a car accident, it's hard for a lot of people. Or people who have traumatic brain injuries that really struggle. I could imagine in the sex abuse um, in sex abuse cases how difficult it really is. Our firm does them, you know, occasionally, and uh, it's it's always a difficult thing. And so you're doing God's work <laughs> in that way. I've. Yeah, there's there's no amount of money that can take away all that, make that not happen. Yeah. Talking about the long-term physical effects or mental effects. There's I would not trade places with one of those people for all the money no. in the world. Do you understand how value valuable your mental health is? I will take my mental health over that settlement payout. I will take it every time. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's fact, so I, important. It's it's actually really interesting you bring that up, and you're actually kind of uh, that's near and dear to my heart because in personal injury cases, people have been kind of poisoned by insurance companies to make them think that people think they hit the lottery when they have a case, right? And I've prosecuted cases for twenty five hundred bucks and ten million, and every single one of those clients in between would give every dollar back to not be in the incident that they were in. Because you're right, there there is no there's no number that could ever, you know, take away what they've dealt with, and you know what you're dealing with too. These victims, there's no, and it's hard for jurors to evaluate because what 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 amount of money do you give somebody to for their mental health? I mean, it's priceless, right? So you could give them a hundred million dollars, it still wouldn't be enough. You know, it's a it's a weird system we have. The so. damage is already 
done and you can't get that back and yeah it's it's a struggle it's easy to say that money like yeah what what amount is reasonable um i'm sure for most of these people if they could go back in time they would wish for that option for it not to happen yeah it affects their lives in ways they never could have imagined like can't even be intimate or have a relationship so imagine your whole life right mm -hmm. you just never formed connections after that or never had a healthy relationship um <clears throat> So your whole life, it's just, it's very traumatic. And so especially for people that had layers of trauma or layers of abuse, their, their whole life choices are changed. Even mm -hmm. the belief that they couldn't go become an attorney or go mm -hmm. do certain things that have, it's, it can develop a very limiting belief system or like their value they place on themselves is so low and a lot of times they'll just go in and out of unhealthy relationships and be further abused and so when I'm doing an evaluation I really like to explore all those things because it can develop into a personality disorder mm. or criminal behavior or mm. other a bunch of other things and yeah. scary man well Listen, uh, I appreciate you giving me the time that you have. Where can people who want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Tell us about this podcast you're about to set up. So you can find me at psychologydoctor.com. That's psychologydr.com. So that's my business. I provide forensic consulting services. And I'm starting a podcast called killer psychologist because i'm killing it <laughs> <laughs> that's what i that's what i get you're you're successful you're not you're not having babies with your clients so <laughs> or your yeah people. yeah that's right thank you thank you for noticing i feel really good about myself with that so killer psychologist i have a colleague who's also a forensic psychologist we are going to co-host episodes and some of them, I interview other people. One of them is my sister, who's a nurse in prison. Uh, one interview I do with a PI. We do lots of different episodes. I just put recorded eight episodes. I recorded one person who uh, their mom tried to poison them to death by putting wow. poison in their baby bottle. End up killing her dad, getting away with murder. So my, my episodes are to get you to think, bend your mind a little bit. I'd like you not to be a victim. Mm. That would be ideal. But I also don't want, so I want people not to be naive about these things and understand how these situations come about. And so it's just very interesting telling people's stories. So Killer Psychologist will be coming out January 17th. And I'm down to get feedback from people what topics they want to hear about or learn about and my goal would be to uh, have less victims in society 
And just before I logged on to this podcast today, I just got a message from the media about UNLV mass shooter. I think he killed three people and they're wanting to talk to me about that. And of course, they just sent me his like manifesto and I haven't read it. When I finish mm. here, I'm going to look at it and it looks really interesting. So I go back in my mind of like how this began before, you know, he killed someone. Like, how could we prevent this? And my goal in my job is that I am able to do that oftentimes. And I have, and I would, that's how I would like to be used people not to mm -hmm. commit crimes, not to be victims. I would like to educate society on how to be safe. And because it, it's just a tragedy that the stories I do encounter. Yeah. Well, like I said, you're doing God's work. I, I don't know how you do it but you do it and you seem to legitimately enjoy it and seem to be able to stay healthy while doing it. So keep doing what you're doing. For those of you who want to follow Dr. Dana Anderson, PsyD, not PhD, we've learned that, uh, you know, fo follow her on uh, watch for killer psychologist and on uh, psychologydoctor.com. So looking forward to it. Also subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, because I don't know what you're doing with your life. You need therapy if you haven't. So there we go. Uh, thank you, uh, doctor, for coming on. And let's do this again. We'll do it again sometime. We'll talk about something fun. We'll talk about crazy murder serial killers. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>